once again, uh, Reverend Jonathan is in uh, Ho Chi Minh for confirmation service. So do keep him and uh, everyone in prayer. And then uh, let's just start with... Uh, yep. Technology has removed many uncertainties in our lives. Satellites enable us to predict the weather and choose the best day to go out and play. Live traffic cameras at the Johor Singapore checkpoints help us decide the best hour to drive into Malaysia. I think a few of us are in Malacca right now. If you're watching this, hi. Global positioning system tells us the, uh, where our food is. A queue number system allows us to uh, count the number of people before us at the doctors. Countdown timers alert us on the seconds remaining to cross the road. Humankind has developed various technologies to eliminate uncertainties because we don't like uncertainty. And in many cases, we want to know for our own protection. Nevertheless, some things in life remain beyond our knowledge. When will the double red lines on my ART kit become single? Will Anwar ever become Prime Minister? Now we know. And as we observe another season of Advent starting today, we are reminded through the gospel passage that the time of Jesus' return is unpredictable. I'll be preaching from both passages today, and the message for us is this. Walk properly towards his unpredictable coming. Our gospel passage is part of a larger conversation about the end times. You can read the entire conversation in Matthew 24 and 25. It was sparked off by Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the Jews believe that the destruction of the temple is the climax of suffering on earth and signals that the end is near. Hence, when the disciples heard the prophecy, they pleaded with Jesus to reveal the time and the sign. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In Matthew 24, verses 4 to 35, Jesus tells them about the signs first. Here's an outline of uh, those verses. In summary, an abominable event will take place in the temple and desecrate it. This is the sign that the temple is about to be destroyed. The destruction of the temple will be followed by unprecedented suffering in Jerusalem and Judea. However, as devastating as these things would be, it is not the end of the world. A period of great tribulation must first take place throughout the world. The destruction of the temple is but the beginning of that tribulation. The gospel will be proclaimed and opposed during this time. People from all nations will come to faith. Many will be led astray. Many will fall away. Nevertheless, a remnant shall remain loyal to Jesus Christ, and our Lord promises to return immediately after this tribulation is over. He is the sign of the end of the age. And when he comes, time will stop, humanity will be judged, and the kingdom of God will be consummated. After telling them about the signs, Jesus answers their question concerning the time. And here is where we come to our passage, verses 36 to 44. And right at the start, Jesus tells them, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. In other words, I don't know when. 
how can the Son of God not know what kind of all-knowing God is this? Some people explain that Jesus actually knows the time, but he just doesn't want to tell us. I find this a bit unacceptable because that makes Jesus a liar. The better way to approach this situation is to affirm that the Son of God really doesn't know. He doesn't know not because he's not God, but because he's God who became man. He is a true human being who shares in all our limitations. Just as there are things in life that we don't know, there are things that are unknown to Jesus. If Jesus had any foreknowledge of things, it is only because the Father has revealed them to him. And the Father has chosen not to reveal to Jesus the time of his coming. Having answered the disciples' questions, Jesus presents three short illustrations. We'll look at these in turn before discussing their purpose. The first illustration recounts the history of Noah. In this retelling, Jesus focused on the ignorance of humankind until the very end. Verse 39 says, They were unaware. They did not know that God is bringing judgment upon them. They have not even heard that there is going to be a flood. Therefore, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. That is, they were going about life as usual. Unsuspectingly and unrepentantly, they carried on with their corrupted, violent and evil ways right up to the last day on earth. And so when the flood came, it was too late to do anything, and they were all swept away. Jesus says that his coming will be similar to the days of Noah. The Son of Man will return with power to bring judgment upon humanity. Many people will be ignorant of this truth, and some will refuse to believe. As such, they will be caught by surprise and unable to escape. The second illustration makes use of an ordinary village scene. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Got some rhythm to it, can you feel the beat? Question, is it better to be taken or to be left behind? Well, the one taken is taken to be with Jesus. The one left is the one left to die. So your pick. Once again, the point is the final judgment will come upon people when they least expect it. We may be taken while we are going about our daily work and household chores. One second, you're being grilled by your boss. The next second, you're gone. Hallelujah. One second, you're in the supermarket picking avocados. Pinch, pinch. The next second, you're gone. One second, you're getting a hair wash. The next second, your hairdresser's gone. Cham liao. And it's not because you still have shampoo in your hair. Our final illustration takes advantage of a common crime in those days. But notice that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Now, Romans divide the night into four parts, uh, starting from 6 p.m. and ending at 6 a.m. Watchmen of the city will take turns to keep watch uh, for one part of the night, looking out for burglars, runaway slaves, and fire. Obviously, they cannot prevent burglary in every town. So if a homeowner, very kiasu, wants to secure his property, he will have to keep watch himself. 
Of course, he's just one person. It's not pers- possible to go without sleep every night. If only the thieves could drop a message to say when they are coming by. Learn from Ninja Ven, please. So just as a thief cannot announce his coming, so also the Son of Man cannot tell us when he is returning. Looking at all three illustrations together, clearly our Lord is trying to emphasize that his return will be surprising, sudden, unexpected. In fact, the final illustration is also a command. Know this, Jesus commanded. You do not know what day and you do not know which hour, but you must know this. My return will be unpredictable. The time must remain a mystery because it is the Father's will. What is the purpose of emphasizing this point? We must understand that the disciples had just witnessed Jesus' triumphal entry a few days ago. All it takes now is a spark to ignite a violent uprising. So the threefold emphasis is really necessary to calm the enthusiasm of the disciples, especially when we're talking about his kingship. Jesus is trying to tell them, my time is not now. Furthermore, taking into consideration the future tribulation Jesus has just described, this is a crucial lesson to protect all disciples from being led astray by false messiahs who will claim that they have secret revelations from God. The same lesson will also buffer them against unnecessary disappointments and skepticism when end-time predictions of false prophets fail. And so against our human wisdom, what we don't know will eventually protect us. History has affirmed the importance of this lesson. According to Wikipedia's list of dates predicted for apocalyptic events, 147 known individuals of groups have made a total of 177 predictions in the last 2,000 years. At least 94 of these apocalyptic prophets identify themselves as Christian or draw inspiration from the Bible. These figures may not sound like a lot, but it means that there is at least one false prophet in every generation. And they are all false prophets because their predictions did not come true. One particular failed prediction caught my attention because it's called the Great Disappointment. You may have heard of the Great Awakening, which is a time of uh, Christian revival. Uh, The Great Disappointment is a period of Christian disillusionment. It all started in 1831 when a man called William Miller started telling people that Jesus would return in the year 1843. He made his predictions after 14 years of Bible study, although some say shorter. His knowledge of the Bible, precise calculations, clear explanation and quiet sincerity persuaded many people. But things really took off when Joseph Himes volunteered to be his marketing manager. Himes created an infographic of Miller's theory and published it in tracts, books and pamphlets. He also recruited and trained other people to preach the same message nationwide. It is estimated that the Millerites movement amassed 50,000, although some say 500,000 followers, with many others watching closely. 
When the year 1843 arrived, Miller announced that Jesus would return between 21st March 1843 and 21st March 1844, give him some buffer time. Excitement increased, especially when a great comet suddenly appeared in the heavens around February. It is called the Great Comet of 1843. Yeah, it's all extra large in those days. And on 21st March, the Millerites gathered together in outdoor camps to wait for Jesus. When he didn't appear, they set dates for future gatherings and continued to wait patiently. Then 21st March 1844 came. No sign of Christ. Miller confessed that his calculations were wrong and acknowledged his disappointment. However, one of his die-hard followers, Samuel Snow, pointed out that Miller had missed something in his calculations. So he presented his own math in August and declared that the correct date should be October 22nd. There was a great revival of expectations. Even Miller, who didn't actually buy into this, was eventually converted by the widespread enthusiasm. Of course, we know they were wrong again. After one year of eager expectation and another two months of anticlimactic wait, their followers had enough. Henry Emmons wrote, I waited all Tuesday and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday and was well in body as I ever was, but after 12 o'clock, I began to feel faint. And before dark, I needed someone to help me up to my chamber as my natural strength was leaving me very fast. And I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with disappointment. Ellen White wrote, I went home and I cried all night. Thousands abandoned Miller. Thousands left the church. Others went back to their previous churches, seeking to reconcile how the truth of the Bible can lead to false predictions. What's the big deal, you may ask? This is not your favourite football team knocked out of World Cup kind of disappointment. Imagine if someone with authority tells you that you only have one year left to live. What would you do? Will you continue to work? Will you continue to go to school? Unlikely. And the Millerites didn't continue life as usual either. Farmers stopped sowing their crops and neglected their livestock to attend gatherings. Shop owners wind down their business. Many of them cleared out their bank accounts to pay off their debts. Some even helped others pay their debts. They gave away money possessions, everything, because they believed that they were going home. Now imagine what they have to deal with when it turned out to be a great disappointment. To say nothing of them being taunted and ridiculed by society for the rest of their lives. If Jesus had not protected us, maybe there would have been more great disappointments. So let us be reminded today. If anyone tells you that they have an end-time prediction, even if it's Reverend Jonathan, he's not here, can play jokes on him, do not believe him. Because Jesus says, no one knows.
If you've been studying the Bible for many years, trying to work out a date for his coming, give it up. Jesus says, no one knows. Now, let's look at the two verses we haven't touched on, and after that, we're going to jump over to Romans. In verses 42 and 44, Jesus actually has two other commands. He says, stay awake and be ready. He means to look out for and be prepared for his coming. But Jesus is not instructing us to gather together and then you know, take turns to watch day and night. He is referring to an inward attitude which is expressed in daily living. And he explains what he means in the rest of the conversation using the parable of the faithful servant, the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and the description of what the Son of Man is looking for during the final judgment. We cannot go into all these teachings right now. It will be Christmas by then. In the time we have left, let's look at something shorter. In our Romans passage, Paul writes, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Here, Paul uses the same metaphor of sleep and wakefulness that Jesus employed. But Paul motivates us to be ready by highlighting the urgency of the situation. Unpredictable means it can happen anytime. He says we must realize that we are counting down and there is less time than ever before. There are only a few grains of sand left in the hourglass, as it were. The night of human's existence in this fallen world is in the final stages. It's the last part of the night. The day of the judgment of God is coming soon. Therefore, we must not remain asleep in ignorance, but wake up and be ready to face the judgment. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Works of darkness refers to the things that you have to do under the cover of night. Whatever we hide behind closed doors, do in secret or when no one is watching. These are shameful actions that our good conscience condemns. They are shameless behaviours that our evil hearts condone. One commentator suggests that Paul had Roman taverns in mind when he wrote this, which is why he gave this particular list of examples. Basically, it means excessive eating and drinking, unrestrained sexual conduct, lack of self-control in seeking fun and pleasure, conflicts triggered by anger, or jealousy. I didn't believe the commentator, so I went to Google and I found a few war paintings depicting uh, Roman nightlife. So in this one, a barmaid is coming around with a cup of wine and the man in red says, over here. The man in green says, no, it's mine. Barmaid can't be bothered, replies, whoever wants it should take it. Don't think it's going to be a happy ending. Next one. A man is kissing a woman who is presumably jealous of him flirting with another woman. 
And in this last one, two men are fighting, although it doesn't look like it. Um, and the innkeeper is trying to push them out of the door, uh, saying, go on, get out of here. You've been fighting. So if these wall paintings are inspired by uh, real-life events, then such scenes should be quite common in those days to make it onto the wall. I don't think Paul is against going to bars and taverns because uh, it's their equivalent of fast food centres and kopitiams. What Paul is against is the ungodly behaviours motivated by fleshly desires which can happen regardless of where we are. He is against human preoccupation with food, sex and power. These are the works of darkness. Instead of such things, Christians should put on the armour of light and walk properly. Walk properly means to live honourably, with nothing to be ashamed of and nothing to hide. Christians should be preoccupied with salvation, righteousness, truth, faith, the word of God and peace, which is the whole armour of God. We are awake when we are focused on such things. We are prepared when we are evangelizing, making an honest living, bringing justice to situations around us, relying on faith and not works, reading the Bible, pursuing peace with others, and things like that. So then, this is the preparation that Jesus desires. He desires an inward attitude of faith, which is lived out in a life faithful to the teachings of God. To keep watch and be ready for his coming is to live out our faith in obedience. Friends, this is actually quite urgent, although it doesn't sound like it. The end of the world is unpredictable and can be happening at any time. What are you doing in preparation? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Are you walking properly in his light? You know, there are people in the world who are getting ready for a post-apocalyptic world. These uh, doomsday preppers are learning how to fend for themselves and survive on their own. They're also stockpiling guns, motorcycles, water and food supplies. Some are even spending big money to buy solar panels power generators, air filtration systems to put in their survival bunkers. They're doing whatever it takes to increase their chances of surviving a world-ending calamity because they believe that the end of the world can come any time. Compared to them, what are we doing to prepare ourselves when we know that the world is not going to end in a calamity but with the glorious return of Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. How are we getting ready for the post-apocalyptic world, which is not some zombie-infested nuclear wasteland, but a lake of sulfur and fire, which we cannot escape unless Jesus takes us to his kingdom? As we begin this season of Advent, let us take a break from life as usual, take a step back from our distractions, and in prayer and fasting, 
invite the Holy Spirit to reveal any works of darkness that we may have knowingly or unknowingly strayed into. Ask the Lord to help you turn away from those things and walk properly towards His coming. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and as we take a minute of silence to reflect on our lives, come and shine your light into our hearts. Father, we thank you for speaking to us through your word and by your spirit. We ask that as we observe Advent, we may continue in a spirit of humility and repentance, rejecting foolish and shameless ways, and live increasingly honourable lives. Help us, Lord, to walk properly towards him. And as we do so, let Jesus come. For we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.